1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Professor Richard LaDuke.
0: Hello, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we're going to talk about uh, perhaps the occult, uh, satanic uh, rituals. Well, maybe.
1: Well, we'll we'll get there. Okay. Yeah. Well, we're going to start with some emails. We're not, it's
0: not going to be a how-to. No, no, no. There were was, was some questions in emails about uh, things that uh, Joseph and the Smith family may or may not have done. Spoiler alert, they didn't, and uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about the sources and, and some of the things that were that were said there. We'll start with an email. Subject line, thank you. Uh, I hope this note finds you well. You know what, RJ, it does. It does although, find us well.
1: Although we're a bit a bit peckish. <laughs> I'm
0: <a little laughs> I, hungry. I initially thought to write you regarding the full detail around John Taylor's miniguns guns and those dozens he must have had with him. tucked into the bandolier in Carthage. That's funny. It is funny. I then decided that moon men may be a more exciting topic. Ultimately, I determined that I should dispense with those thoughts and even skip the usual business around tariffs, treaties, and <laughs> Brigham versus John. Joking aside, I wanted to thank both of you for your service. I've learned so much from you and have had several issues that, uh, have, that I've considered for years. Be clarified. When you tackle the difficult topics by sharing your testimony and the fact that you know Because the Spirit confirmed it to you, I'm always reassured because I have always felt the same. I have, in fact, sometimes wondered that that was not enough and that I should study more or find new sources to study to clarify these things. I feel good knowing that others, especially those with your expertise, also rely on the Spirit. I wanted to share one specific experience while listening to your podcast. I was driving one afternoon and listening to the pod You were speaking about God and how he is literally our father, and that in many ways, he is a father just like we are. He worries about us and tries to help us and guide us. In the same manner, with the same love that I, as a father, care for my children. My view and relationship with God changed upon receiving this teaching slash revelation. I instantly felt closer to him and realized I could talk with him and have a father-son relationship with him. My mind and heart had been opened. The weird thing is, that was not your main topic. That it rarely is, RJ. By the way,
1: in fairness, RJ,
0: if it had been the topic, there's no way it would have gotten through. (laughs) But in the commentary and banter, it was just part of the show. I learned something. The spirit helped me to know my father better, and that in that way, I had never considered before. I'd always viewed him as a Zeus-like personage who would eventually judge me and certainly send me to the actual Presbyterian version of hell, of all the hells. Garrett, <laughs> what, Presbyterian versus Catholic yeah, versus Methodist? I mean, well, look, Calvinist
1: hell is pretty bad. Okay, yeah, worse than so. worse than the lowest rung of Catholic? Yeah, there's. I mean, I mean, things have gotten a good window dressing lately. <laughs> but if we're talking Dante's Inferno, yeah, it's pretty bad. Okay, all right, so, but Presbyterian
0: certainly yeah. up there. At least from the 19th century. <laughs> I see things slightly different. And by the way, that's just an example of, uh, you know what? Maybe, maybe that commentary on how bad Calvinist hell is, maybe that helps someone today.
1: You know what? I think someone today was like, well, I know I'm going to hell. I just don't know which hell it is. And then th- this will touch their heart. <laughs> uh,
0: I see things slightly differently after th- this particular day. Yes, he is God, but he is also my father who cares about me and the things I am going through. In fact... He will do everything he can to help me progress, as I would do anything for my children. In short, not really, this is ridiculously long, I am grateful for all that you talk about, even when you may stray from the main topic. Your podcast is fun, educational, inspiring, and is definitely making a difference to many. I may even name my next child, Guadalupe. Wow! Again, thank you, and that's keep up awesome. the great, uh, keep up the good or terrible work. <laughs> that would that make me. I've read that a couple of times. It's made me laugh every time. Uh, either way, I love it, RJ.
1: It's a lot easier for us to keep up the terrible work, <laughs> RJ. Thank you so much for what a kind email, and I'm just glad that that uh, you you had that experience. And and frankly, that's what we hope is that as we talk about these topics, you know, the spirit will speak to different people in different ways. We hope that it doesn't always result in someone going to the emergency room because they fall down an icy hill in Canada. <laughs> but I mean it I, I think that's one of the, the awesome aspects of the spirit. I mean, you kind of feel that when you when you read your scriptures or you, you listen to a talk, you may not even get out of it what what the intended portion of the scripture is or the talk, but it's the spirit that speaks to you to to help you. I I, I I love that aspect of this continually learning by the Spirit. It actually reminds me of
0: something that Garrett uh, would say all of the time uh, in terms of um, home teaching, back when it was, back in the day when it was home teaching.
1: Or for most wards in the church, still exactly (laughs) the same way. So so
0: you always used to say when we would talk about these kinds of things that I, I never once heard a uh, talk on home teaching that made me want to go and do home teaching. But I've had talks on the Savior, on the atonement, on a, a myriad of other things where I felt the Spirit and thought, how are the Thompsons doing?
1: Right. I should I check better on I better go do my – I mean, I, I for me, that's really how it is. And that's why I think when we do teach, I mean, probably the podcast is a poor example. Very poor example. But when you're teaching in church or in a setting where you have better teachers than us – that the most important aspect is that the people in the room at some point feel the spirit because you know we we think about things like you know oh there's no way i can get through all of you know how am i going to get through all of the you know, mark chapter seven in the 30 minutes i have and then plus they had 10 minutes for trying to sign up for an easter egg hunt and all other kinds of st- you know you know how it is right sure and 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 we kind of like we worry about getting through all the content and content matters. I'm not saying it doesn't. I know this podcast makes it seem like content doesn't matter, but you know, it it does matter what, what it is you're teaching. But in the end, there has to be the, the spirit has to be present at some point that touches people because that will do the actual teaching. So you can give a lesson on why it's important to, to do your ministering and And those are fine, but what will really matter is, does that person feel the Holy Spirit? And that is what will make them change. the, the spirit tells us, teaches us the things we need to know. So yeah, that's that's uh, great. So this
0: next this next uh, email comes from uh, Elder L uh, from the uh, Spain Barcelona mission.
1: Getting a lot from the Spain Barcelona mission. We're huge there. Uh, John, by been, the
0: way, did a fireside. I'm sure he mentioned us.
1: I, I, it was probably the topic of his fireside.
0: <laughs> I guarantee yeah. that it was not. But uh, So I know Elder L. a little bit. Uh, an impressive impressive young man. Uh, quite, quite so. Um, I am really grateful for the podcast and the effort. My capability to analyze facts in general, not only on what history regards, is actually interesting. The way you explain why something is analyzed the way it is and why some clu- some conclusions aren't valid helps me read through fake and manipulative documents. Before my mission, I heard on a podcast that the Smith family used to do sacrifices or some sort of non-conventional religious practice and that these could that could look satanic to us, but for them it was their way to get closer to God. I don't remember quite well, maybe I am confused, but I have no access to it as a missionary. Nevertheless, if you know anything in regards, I would consider that interesting. I also want to state that this rumor doesn't affect my testimony first because I don't know if it is true. And second, because I think that if it actually if it is actually true, they were simply trying to worship God and not idols like Israel back in the day, Elder L. El. By the way, Elder L, El, that's the perfect way to respond to everything.
1: I I don't know if it's true, and even if it is, yeah, honestly, so Elder, you're a man after my own heart. I mean, if we could all get to the point where we we can boil it down to this, right? Is Joseph Smith a prophet? Is the Book of Mormon true? Did he see God? Did he receive revelations from God? Once you know that those things are true, then yes, there's all kinds of information that may not fit, you know, neatly in the the round peg and square hole, you know, uh, or square peg and round hole. Um, actually, you know what? Round peg, square you hole. Know what? You know what? You know what? You were right the first time. Yeah, actually, that's, round that's, peg that's a lot square hole. I, It's so much bigger. It's, how can I not fit the, <laughs> the round peg in there? No one knows. But once you have that basis down, that's the question you can further ask. I mean- would the fact that, let's say that that ended up being true, and we'll, we'll get into it, right? Would that mean that Joseph Smith didn't see God? Because when the Spirit testified to you that Joseph Smith did, what can now change that, right? Once you Once you've had a witness from God, which is a far more powerful witness than any secular witness— People believe that if they saw an angel, then they would really believe. If I saw a miracle, then I would believe. And yet the scriptures demonstrate the exact opposite of that. The scriptures are not filled to the brim with people who saw miracles and instantly believed. Instead, the scriptures are filled with people who saw miracles and even after they saw miracles, didn't believe. So, the deciding factor really is that power of the Spirit. And if you've had the Spirit testify to you that that Joseph Smith is a prophet, that the church is true, then yes, we're of course going to learn information over the course of our lives that we didn't know before. But I love your approach. The first part is, I don't even really know if that happened. So So before... You know, I, I write my resignation letter to Salt Lake, letting them know I'm not only coming home from my mission, I'm now, you know, an, an atheist. Uh, uh, the, the first step is, is the material I even heard true? What sources does it come from? It, what, what, what is the background of it? Secondly, be you know, after first questioning it, let's find out what it even is. I love the fact that you followed up with. You know what though, Joseph Smith's a profit either way. Now we're going to examine sources. I thought it might be a good time to maybe, maybe examine some of of Richard's sources. Well, so so this
0: this uh, episode is going to be coming out uh, toward the beginning to middle of of April. Um, I made some picks as a, as I am wont to do on this podcast for the NCAA tournament. Um, and I, uh, made some picks that were, uh, controversial at the time. And I, I picked, uh, Furman over Virginia. <laughs> hmm. I said I was pretty confident there would be a late, uh, turnover. Big three, Furman for the win. Take, take wow. the. Really? Yeah. I, I picked yeah. Furman and I and? also, I also picked Farley Dickinson. Well, I said, Whoa. you know what? I know that, uh, so. Uh, I thought that Virginia had lost to a, a 16 seed before. That's why I thought they would lose to Furman. And then wow. also now in the, the year after they lost, they won the national championship, but still. Uh, and then I thought, you know, Farley Dickinson, they're due. And uh, Purdue, they don't have what it takes. Their big man is weak and uh, that they would hit the threes
1: and and win. That's what I think. So I don't remember it exactly the same way. I do. So here's an example of someone asserting something. Well, I'm pretty confident. I will find
0: the tape and I'll play it. Let's let's,
1: let's find the tape and maybe we could just – let's roll back because Richard is claiming that he picked the Furman over Virginia upset and told you to bet on it. And he also picked the 16 seed over the 1 seed – Dickinson over. I I remember getting a lot
0: of negative emails saying how how would you be just so incredibly uh, just so lacking so. I don't know that I remember it the same way, but you know what?
1: Let's go. Let's let's go back to the documents. So this is probably the right time to talk about what some of our spread picks are for the NCAA tournament. Look,
0: the value is is Virginia. There's no question about it. Uh, I'm not saying that they're going to win. I'm saying you're getting the best value at plus three thousand. What do we think that Zach Eddy's going to do with Purdue? I mean, obviously, it was it was plus six thousand beginning of the season. Now they're they're almost favorites. But he's a giant. A, he's he's a seven four monster of a man. Yeah, yeah. He, Certainly didn't exist in Mosiah Hancock's pre mortal existence, where right. the average man is 6'2". 6'2". Yep. Wow. Um. Wow. Well, first of all, I mean, how do you know that was me? Well,
1: first of all, I love the fact that we can now source check you in your gambling. <laughs> So, there were three gigantic upsets in the first round.
0: Virginia Furman. Uh, there was, uh, per- obviously, Purdue. Purdue. Dickinson, And then, Princeton and Arizona. I, I said so, to hit Princeton so, hard. So,
1: I don't recall that being on any of the tapes. Um, you'll notice, you see the problem, right? Richard was asserting that he said to pick Furman, and yet... We just heard him actually say that Virginia is the best pick. Best value.
0: And I, I believe I said I didn't say that they would win necessarily, but the best value.
1: So how exactly would you pick them to advance in the tournament if they don't win?
0: <laughs> well, so look, first of all, it's really easy for people to come. And what's funny about that is even I think the Purdue, the Purdue – uh, saying how great Purdue was, mm-hmm. was after, like, a week after Purdue lost, I think that episode dropped,
1: right? Right, so, so people have already heard how bad we were with Yeah, 100%. That. Okay.
0: And And by this time, I've received several emails from Ken making fun of how terrible I am at this. Mm-hmm. First of all. But second of all, no one had... No, so that's that's the thing with history, right? Like, oh, oh, really? Oh, okay. So uh, everyone I, had farther I, I know season. that
1: if I had a vision, I would have written it down in my journal right away. Okay, right.
0: So thirty-eight percent of Americans had uh, Purdue in the Final Four. Almost nine percent had them winning it all. After the, after out of twenty million brackets, twenty-two
1: had that. Okay. So so right. only twenty two. There's more. There's several thousand that are enrolled at Fairleigh Dickinson. Yeah, the right?
0: president of uh, Fairleigh Dickinson did not pick Fairleigh Dickinson. Right. So TV. at the
1: very least, the band didn't pick them, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> no. I mean maybe the whole team did, and you count the trainers and the coaches. Let's let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They all picked themselves. Yeah.
0: So yeah. Sure. I look like an idiot. I mean. I mean, look, I don't need a lot of
1: help, but I mean, anyway, it- I think what this is going to turn into is a show about how not to gamble. <laughs> <laughs> the only sure bet, gamble. The yeah, only sure, sure bet is to not make one. <laughs> um, but back to the question at hand. So um, you, you stated that you had, uh, elder, that you'd heard this on a podcast, and and so there are some various bad sources that make these arguments. Now, one of the the first ones, one of the earliest ones is in our old tried and true favorite favorite Mormonism Unveiled. Oh, yeah. Um everyone knows Playing the Hits. Yep, Mormonism Unveiled the first major anti-Mormon book.
0: So for those that are new to the podcast, Mormonism
1: Unveiled is well, it's the first major anti-Mormon book that was published in 1834. It was uh, uh, several things. First, it was a collection of affidavits that was made by a twice excommunicated member of the church by the name of Philastis. Well, sorry, Doctor Philastus Hurlbut, who was hired by an anti-Mormon newspaper editor by the name of Eber Howe, who who hated the church, to go back to Pennsylvania, New York, interview people who knew the Smiths, and to get negative affidavits and bring them back and publish them. It is this book that originates the Solomon Spaulding argument, where the argument of well, where did the Book of Mormon come from? Joseph Smith, obviously not educated, but the Book of Mormon seems more educated than that. Oh, I know, he actually just stole the book from a former Protestant minister. I mean, former by the fact that he's deceased. Uh, he was, you know, still a minister, and then he died. So you're right. Um, and. That that's the reason why it sounded much more erudite and much more religious, and the reason why it was fooling so many people, because it had been written by an actual Christian, right? This this argument about the Solomon's falling Manuscript was something that wouldn't be fully re- repudiated for, for four or five decades, right? That's how much staying power it had.
0: And how was how it, uh, it ultimately uh, shown to be? Well, not- because
1: they find the actual manuscript oh. that, that they claim this came from, and in fact- uh, even though Eber Howe and others, you know, reiterate over and over again that it's just basically the same document, and oh, this is exactly where it came from, and they even interview some of Solomon Spaulding's kids. Were like, oh yeah, my dad was like talking about Lehi like all the time, <laughs> and then they found the actual book, and a non Latter Day Saint president of a university who was uh, who examined it said that there was not only was was there not lehi and nephi all over it there was no name or incident in either book that was the same right huh. so it's it's word for word this is exactly where the book of mormon came from the book of mormon came from this we find the actual thing literally not a single name is the same even though we said that all the names came from it i mean it's it's a it's a great demonstration though of Sometimes if people just say something enough times, then people start to, you know, they just, well, yeah, it must be. I mean, everyone says it. Everyone says it. And for the longest time, that's exactly how everyone tried to describe where the Book of Mormon came from. Anyway, the other part of the book is a collection of these affidavits. Now, it's important to note, even scholars are often very uncritical of these affidavits. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, these are published in an anti Mormon book. Okay. There's not a question of whether or not Eber Howe is publishing this book to hurt the Mormons. He's bragging about the fact that he's trying to do it. He will give an interview later in life where he will say, We undertook every legal means to try to drive them from the county. Right. So, so it's not, I'm not the one calling Eber Howe an anti Mormon. Ibrahim is part of the anti-Mormon committee of Kirtland. They called it that, right? So so no, I'm not going to pretend that Ibrahim is not an anti-Mormon when he names himself an anti-Mormon. I think, you know what? I'm going to go with him on that, right? I'll, I'll take you at your word that you're not trying to be just unbiased and professional because you're the one who said it. And, and when, when it comes to these affidavits, there's not a single one of these that exists in its manuscript form. Not that we know of. So there are dozens and dozens of these in the book, all very negative, all negative. But I don't have a single one of them. Right? There's no actual original copy of them. Now, as Joseph makes very clear, there's all kinds of people who hate him in Palmyra and attack him. So it's it's not a problem that you can find a whole bunch of people who say negative things about the Smiths. Joseph tells you that. But the specificity in it, I actually have no way to verify it, right? That some of these people existed, sure, I can go track them down. That what was published is exactly what they wrote in their affidavit and it wasn't in any way embellished, I actually literally have no way to check that, right? We, we, we can only go off of, well, we, we trust that it's right, which is kind of a funny thing, right? Because there are certainly aspects of the book that are demonstrably, Not true. Like we have a manuscript of the Book of Mormon that was written by Solomon Spaulding and we're going to eventually publish that and show that that's where it came from, which we never published because it didn't show that that's where it came from. Right. So so there is a, a couple of reasons to take a step back. So that's my first and foremost. As a careful historian... I'm not even entirely sure the affidavits that you read in here are being published the way that they were originally given. Frankly, I don't even know for certain that those interviews took place the way that Hurlbut alleges they did. how, How could I possibly know that? Now, no one comes out and says, hey, this dude lied about me in his book, so you know we don't have any evidence of that so you can say you can at least say with some fair certainty that it, or you can at least say there's no apparent effort of anyone named in this book to try to say hey that's not what i said so 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 maybe they are verifiable and again that there's a whole bunch of people that hate joseph smith is something that joseph smith tells us in fact I don't even need to tell you that. You can walk outside and say, hey, anyone care about Joseph Smith? And everyone else will let you know how much they hate. So the fact that there's negative, that that's, that's the thing. But that is the context of it. At any rate, this is where the earliest of these accounts comes from. So I'm going to read it. This is from a, uh, a, a Palmyra resident who is going to say this. It's a little bit lengthy. Joseph Sr. came to me one night, and he told me that Joseph Jr. had been looking in his glass, and that he'd seen not many rods from his house, two or three kegs of gold and silver, some feet under the surface of the earth, and that none others but the elder Joseph and myself could get them. I accordingly consented to go, and early in the evening, repaired to the place of deposit, Joseph Sr. first made a circle, 12 or 14 feet in diameter. This circle, he said, contains the treasure." Oh my God! i of like want to make a movie of this, don't we? Yeah. yeah. He then stuck in the ground a row of witch hazel sticks and around said circle for the purpose of keeping off the evil spirits. Within this circle, he made another of about eight to ten feet in diameter. He walked around three times on the periphery of this last circle, muttering him to to himself something which I could not understand. Oh. Interesting. Obviously some kind of... Perhaps he was saying Beetlejuice. No, probably some kind of evil Latin. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He next stuck a steel rod into the center of the circles and then enjoined profound silence upon us, lest we should arouse the evil spirit that had the charge of these treasures. After we dug a trench about five feet in depth around the rod. Oh, boy, that's a that's a deep
0: trench. That well, you know, and,
1: and these are not good shovels. No, no, oh no, my god! Poorly crafted show. You know what? I was
0: with him until this point, and I'm like, "There's no way they dug a hole or dug a trench like that." Get out! Yeah, of Yeah,
1: right. Uh, the old man, by signs and motions, asked leave of absence, and I went to the house to inquire of young Joseph the cause of our disappointment. Um, he soon returned and said that, jo- that Joseph had remained. All this time in the house, looking in his stone and watching the motions of the evil spirit, and that he saw the spirit come up to the ring, and as soon as it beheld the cone which we had formed around the rod, it caused the money to sink. We then went into the house, and the old man observed that we'd made a mistake in the commencement of operation. If it had not been for that, he said, we would have gotten that money. Hmm. At another time, they devised a scheme by which they might satiate their hunger with the mutton of one of my sheep. They had seen in my flock a sheep, uh, of, of sheep, a large, fat, black weather. Old Joseph and one of the boys came to me one day and said that Joseph Jr. had discovered some very remarkable and valuable treasures, which could be procured in only one way. The way was as follows, that a black sheep should be taken onto the ground where the treasures were concealed, that after cutting its throat, it should be led around the circle while bleeding this being done the wrath of the evil spirit would be appeased the treasures would be obtained and my share of them was to be fourfold to gratify my curiosity i let them have a large fat sheep they afterwards informed me that the sheep was killed pursuant to the commandment but as there was some mistake in the process it did not have the desired effect. Yeah,
0: you got to you got to slaughter the sheep correctly. This,
1: I, I believe, sheep. is the only time that they ever made money digging a profitable business. They, however, had around them a constantly a worthless gang whose employment was to dig money nights and who daytimes had more to do with mutton than with money. <laughs> that's a great That's a great, that's yes, a great line. Very more than mutton than money. Yeah, they 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 uh, this is a you know a very negative affidavit from William Stafford. Um, this is a an example of someone claiming that an event happened in the past. Now, first of all, it is a little odd, right? So let me get this straight. You went through this entire process of. Him like drawing a circle on the ground, putting witch hazel in the ground, walking around it three times, if, digging
0: an enormous trench. Yeah,
1: you, I, I, and if you dug the trench, I mean, William Stafford's got all kinds of blisters all over him, and of course, there is no no treasure that's found. But you're telling me that after that happened, after that happened, you gave them your biggest and best sheep to to do something similar again. Right. So so maybe maybe there should be some affidavits about you. I mean, like I it actually really kind of begs credulity at that point. I know it makes for a great line that they had more to do with mutton than with money. But frankly, you're the one who believed it and gave it to them, correct? So that's a that's that's the best
0: case scenario right in this in this in this particular sense right right like the best case scenario is is that you know
1: yeah you i i totally it. knew the smiths were liars everyone knew they were liars i knew they were liars that's why i gave them my sheep interesting <laughs> i i don't know either you don't know them to be liars as much as you think you do or in fact um maybe maybe there's something else going on now part of the problem when a source is published like that look mormonism unveiled is incredibly popular and in fact all later anti-mormon books in the 19th century at the very least and you'd actually be pretty hard pressed to find any today but they they use it as a template they use it as a source they're constantly quoting from it so then the source begins to get uh, it begins to get power just in the fact that people keep repeating it the other thing that happens when a source becomes very public, look, this is a problem inside Latter-day Saint sources as well, is that it begins to affect the way people talk about stories. So Mormon is Unveiled is published, and in that published book says, you know, we're drawing circles on the ground, we're putting witch hazel in, we're, we're, we're spreading lamb's blood around, right? So now anyone else who is reminiscing about what happened with Mormonism, how do you separate out the fact that that story is now in circulation? A, a great example of this. I, I think we might have done this earlier on the podcast but probably just said we would and then didn't and then got called out later by who was our good friend who uh, called this out and all that. but um, at any rate, the dating of Doctrine and Covenants um, section 49, was is wrong in in the history of the church, and it's it's simply because of a typographical error, right? They, they they made a mistake on when it was given when they were when they were printing it, but history of the church got published and circulated everywhere, right? So even though in the manuscript it's right, when it's published in the church newspaper it's right, when it's published in the history of the church it was wrong, but you know what? People weren't running around with copies of the Messenger and Advocate, saying, "Oh yes, here's here's what happened in the past." They had access to the history of the church. That that's the 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 widely is you know the, the history of Joseph Smith is how it's published at first, and it actually even affected the way that participants in that revelation remembered it. Parley P Pratt is one of the people who is named in the revelation. And even though in his own journal the time wouldn't actually work out for when that revelation would have happened, when he writes about it in his journal, he's like, hey man, this is when it happened. I mean, he just he repeats, he actually quotes what is there from the history of Joseph Smith. Now it's not because Parley wasn't actually present for the revelation, it's that because this date, you know, it, it was it was wrong and published wrong for so long that that starts to affect how someone then tries to work it back into their memory. In that case, there really was a revelation and there really was an event. In this case, where you have this allegation made, again, from one very, obviously, angry person in Palmyra, you know, just making a hearsay affidavit. Oh, yeah, yeah, Father Smith told me this and then they told me that and by the way, I gave him a sheep and surprisingly, they ate it. I mean, there's literally no way to verify anything any of those things any of those things but now it's in public discourse and for those of you unaware after 1834 latter day saints didn't suddenly become well beloved in the united states they become increasingly hated so now you have a culture of people in the in the country hating latter day saints and you now have this published book and other published things to draw from to to explain your hatred.
0: But at least that hatred subsides. In the latest Pew Research poll, uh, Mormons, as they're yeah, classified yeah. in that poll, very popular. Well, that's
1: the best part, right? That you know, I mean, it, the, the reality is when someone points to a poll like that and says, "Oh, yeah, we're, we're not doing a very good job as a people," it's like, well. Can you point to me the to the Pew Research poll where most people love Latter-day Saints? Because <laughs> if you're arguing that it's just something Latter-day Saints did last week, then what happened at Hans Mill? I mean, like, it, it's not a very good argument to try to just say, oh, it's because of this. Oh, yeah. well, You know what it is? It's because of this. Okay. Well, then what was it 20 years ago when it was the same thing? Well, it was other things. Yeah, I mean, it, the reality is Latter-day Saints are despised in the United States. I
0: will say, and this is a bit of an aside, but one of the things that's nice in that Pew Research poll is it, it pulls the the other religions and their thoughts on other religions. And uh, Latter-day Saints, or Mormons as they're called in the poll, were the most accepting of all of the different religions. It reminds me of what you said about Joseph Smith in Nauvoo, about all religions.
1: Yeah, and, and frankly, it's not a huge surprise because um, – you know, ordinarily, you would have people on your side that are also Christians, but as that poll demonstrates, th- those evangelical Christians don't consider Latter-day Saints Christians. So they don't despise Latter-day Saints because they think we're mean people, ornery people. They just think that we worship a false god and preach a blasphemy that's sending ourselves and other millions of people to hell. Presbyterian yeah. But ju- Presbyterian hell, just just a little bit of Presbyterian hell. Um, so here's another source. Um, another source is a former um, a, a resident um, of the Colesville area in New York, and that's just on the border with Pennsylvania is going to write a letter in 1842 to a professor who's trying to compile again a very negative book about, you know, the rise of these Mormons, right? By 1842, Latter-day Saints uh, there's a lot being spoken about them in popular culture because you now have you know, uh, people coming from England and landing there. You certainly have, you know, Joseph Smith, they're building the city in Nauvoo, and it it they're kind of a they're they're well known, just not well liked. Certainly after the, the horrors of Missouri, there is some sympathy expressed for them, but you know, also nothing happens to Missouri. So not enough sympathy for anything to happen. At any rate, um, this uh this former Justice of the Peace is going to write and claim something similar. Um, you know, Joe Smith Sr. lived in Vermont, connected with a band of counterfeiters. I don't know how this person would know that. I mean, there's no source that would say that, but you know what? We, we, we did a whole episode on it, so that, that shows that this guy knows. He ran and came to the Mohawk River, eloped, seduced a married woman to Canada, came to Palmyra in this state. So, So right at the very beginning, this person's claiming something that is false you you can't even find you can't even find an, an antagonist of the church that will argue that lucy max smith was married to someone else and that joseph smith senior seduced her and that's how they got married
0: He was just maybe it was a different wife not lucy a different
1: one right which also then wouldn't exist okay or that they ran away to get married in canada that's the most unbelievable of all of this, right? Well, it was before Niagara Falls was a was a a, a dream spot for uh, you know honeymooners, a, of all honeymooners over the world. of all, all over the world. So there's multiple things that he's going to make claims in here that um, that you can demonstrate are not actually accurate, but he's going to claim, and the reason why this is such a popular letter is he's going to claim that. Uh, He's going to talk about Joseph Smith's arrest that he's going to have. And uh, he he says, Joe and others were digging for a chest of money in night, could not obtain it. They procured one thing and then another together with a black, um, well, a pejorative word for a dog.
0: Of the feminine persuasion. Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. Uh, that dog, again, me inserting via air quotes, um, was offered a sacrifice, blood sprinkled, prayer made at the time, no money obtained, the above sworn to on trial. So he he's going to make this claim that... Uh, and it's clearly quite negative uh, against uh, Latter-day Saints, right? But he's, he's, he's going to make this claim that they were trying to dig for money, they couldn't find it, and that Joseph Smith sacrificed this, this uh, dog, well, actually, the people with him sacrificed the dog and spread it around as a sacrifice. Now, both of these accounts that we just read, you'll notice that neither one of them claimed to be an eyewitness of the events. Both of them claim to have had a conversation about the events or have heard someone else talk about the events. So at the very first, at the very beginning here, you are actually two steps removed from just regular hearsay. Regular hearsay is, yeah, Father Smith said, I better go find out from Joseph what happened. That's hearsay. That is... They, they did something, right? You're, you're claiming that other people told you. Now, in William Stafford's case, he is saying like, oh yeah, they told me that they killed the, the sheep and they did this.
0: But they did it wrong. I didn't see it. And, yeah. and
1: none of them are sheep. claiming that they're witnesses to it. So, so these are these sources. Um, um, th- this uh, is, is something that, is going to be repeated and repeated and repeated by other sources. So, for instance, um, there is a a German who is going to write a uh, a book about uh, Joseph Smith, and he's just going to borrow from all of these other published accounts. He is going to claim uh, something similar. His name is Wilhelm Weimittel, by the way, but it's spelled with a W. Sorry. Wilhelm Weimetel is how... Us, you know, non-Germanic languageed folks uh, would read it. Although I'll bet our Danish friend, I'll bet, I'll bet he would. I bet, I bet he would read it correctly. He is going to, in his book that he writes, make all kinds of allegations. But this is what he's going to write in his book. He is going to say, um, I'm not going to read it all, but they went to, um, uh, they went to Isaac Hale's house um, and. Being too lazy to work and too poor to hire, he obtained a partner by the name of Oliver Harper of New York State, who had the means to hire help. But after a short time, operations were suspended for a time, during which William Hale heard of Peeper Joseph Smith Jr. and wrote to him and soon visited him and found Smith's representations were so flattering that Smith was either hired or became a partner with William Hale, Oliver Harper, and a man by the name of Stoll, who had some property. They hired men and dug in several places. An account given in the history of Susquehanna County of a pure white dog to be used as a sacrifice to restrain the enchantment and the anger of the Almighty at the attempt to palm off on him a white sheep for a white dog is a fair sample of Smith's revelations and the, of the God that inspired him. So now, in this account, they're claiming that it wasn't a black dog or a sheep that it was actually a white dog that they tried to trick God with to make God think was a sheep and that that's the reason why God was upset. Well, he said that the process was done incorrectly. Well, this is a different place. So this is... this is. Uh, uh, one that's not in the Palmyra. No, what I'm saying in yeah. the in the
0: previous thing, both processes were done incorrectly. Perhaps so that maybe perhaps that, that's just Joseph's style is to do the processes incorrectly. Right.
1: Well, I mean it's the only way you can get it, but you know we just we aren't ever able to use you know a, like we confused a dog for a sheep. Um, but uh, the the interesting aspect of this is that in that history of Susquehanna County that, that uh, Wilhelm Weimental uh, references. This is how it is reported there. The story seems to be told the opposite way of what we just read. Uh, They commence digging on what is now the Jacob I. Skinner, uh, the farm of Jacob I. Skinner in Oakland Township. Uh, After digging a great hole that is still to be seen, still to be seen, by the way. Oh, yes, it's (laughs) It's quite the hole. Oh, yeah, the hole is still there. You can go find it today, except that you can't. Harper got discouraged and was about to abandon the enterprise. Joseph now declared to Harper that there was an enchantment about the place that was removing the treasure further off. So the treasure's, you know, floating around and getting away from, him. that Harper must get a perfectly white dog and sprinkle his blood over the ground. So, so the revelation is he has to get a dog, a perfectly white dog. Now notice what we just read was they needed a sheep. They couldn't find a sheep, so they killed the dog instead. Right? This has it the other way around. Um, Harper must get a perfectly white dog, sprinkle his blood over the ground, and that would prevent the enchantment from removing the treasure. Search was made all over the country, but no perfectly white dog could be found. Joseph said he thought a white sheep would do as well. A sheep was killed and his blood was sprinkled as directed. Right. So you you have these two varying accounts. And look at the, the places are not the same. What's going on is not the same. What Joseph is saying is not the same. Whether it's a dog or a sheep that they're trying to kill, or how they do it, or what they do is not the same. It's literally the opposite. It's pretty good evidence. That, that it happened. <laughs> it's pretty good evidence that that what is likely going on here is people are simply repeating Stories that they've heard. This is actually how this started in the history of Susquehanna County. This is how this I should have started with it. I should have I buried the lead. I buried the lead. This is how it started. Many stories respecting Joe Smith are still current in the localities frequented here. So it actually starts off by saying, this is a story that people tell. A straggling Indian who was passing up the Susquehanna had told of buried treasure. Joseph, hearing of this, hunted up the Indian and induced him to reveal the place where it was buried. The Indian told him that a point on a certain number of paces due north from the highest point of Turkey Hill on the opposite side of the Susquehanna River was the place. Joseph now looked about for some man of means to engage in the enterprise. And he induced the well-to-do farmer by the name of Harper of Harpersville, New York, very convenient, to go uh, with him. Right, And they commenced, commenced digging. So this... This idea is um, uh, uh, something that is already being told as a story. Here, we're not even getting an affidavit. Here, we're just the writer of the history of this county is saying, oh yeah, people tell stories about this all the time. The problem is, how do you trace back the origination of that story? Just recently, uh, on our premium content, um, for those of you who haven't signed up, it's a good you plug. Know, you've got to keep the lights on. If you can't keep the lights on here at Studio Le Dirkmot, which is Le Duc Dirkmot put together, the Studio Le Dirkmot, which makes it sound like it's a much better studio than it yeah,
0: is. Yeah, it's very fresh. Yeah. yeah. We're having big hits. Um,
1: and- uh, one of the things we, we're going to talk about is, is early Christianity. Trying to figure out when people first started to claim that they'd found the True Cross, and, it, and it's it's a it's a very interesting story. By the True Cross, I mean the actual cross of Jesus, like portions of it. Well, you have people several hundred years after uh, after Constantine's mom visited visits the Holy Land, who will start to say, "Oh yes, Helena is her name." that when helena came to palestine she found the place where jesus was crucified she also found the place where he was born and she also found the true cross now what's interesting about that is people will say that and then you have people say oh yes this was part of the true cross that helena found this is da, da, da. and and you all the way going forward helena found the true cross okay or helena i don't however you want to say it okay if you're from Montana, Helena, okay? I'm sure it was named after Constantine's mom. Second of all, the the these the sources going forward all say that, but when you go backwards into the sources, you first get the story of Constantine's mom coming, and there's one that says, oh, she found some holy places. Then there's one that says, oh, yeah, she found both of the holy places. None of those sources say that she found the true cross. So our earliest sources on it don't say anything about it. But then later, after another person, uh, probably Cyril of, of of Jerusalem is one of the first who says it, says, oh yeah, she found the true cross too, which would have been 100 years later. Suddenly after he says it, everyone simply starts saying it. All the other people like, oh yes, Helena found the true cross. Oh, Helena, thank you so much. But other writers who had written about her visit never mentioned it prior to that right so you can see how things like this begin to snowball certainly there are people who despise the smiths and castigate the smiths and say all kinds of negative things about the smiths right but you'll notice that all of these accounts are all reminiscent accounts right? these are all people saying oh yeah this happened usually 40 or 50 years into the past they are all antagonistic in their own right. They're not saying like oh yeah you know I remember this uh, you know good boy that Joe Smith you know they're, they're all they're all negative in the first place. They're contradictory in what they're claiming and they in, they include false demonstrably false information. So how do you then sort out what is actual information what what there might be a kernel of truth to? Or is this simply one of those things that goes back to someone saying like, "Well, you know, those Smiths are pretending they probably found some stuff. I'll, you know, probably sacrificed some you know, some animals to do it." Now, I will say before we move on from this topic, and I'm sure everyone listening is hoping, well, you know what? Let's just move on from the podcast. Let's let's move to a completely different podcast. Let's follow
0: him doing right now.
1: Yeah. Or you know what? When is Richard going? Richard's Bad bets. When is that going to be? Uh, uh, is that is that on the premium content? It's premium content. Yeah, you to yeah, pay yeah. for that. If you want picks from games that happened four weeks ago that were, by the way, wrong, you will have to sign up for the premium content. Um, it is important to know that modern Christians, uh, I mean modern by by in the 20th and 21st century, have also castigated Joseph Smith theologically because of animal sacrifice it's actually a point that Christian anti-mormons so in this case I'm not talking about the person who's like you know wants you to believe the church is false and hopes that you don't believe in God anymore you know this kind of atheistic anti-mormonism which is so prevalent in this case there are you know many Christians who just think that we are wayward and you know while they're still certain I'm going to hell you know don't want me to go there at least say that you know and they see Joseph Smith's truth claims as not just factually false, but they also see them as theologically incorrect. And so they've actually attacked Joseph Smith also on the basis that Joseph Smith taught that at some point there would be the restoration of animal sacrifices. Now, it's a pretty solid thing in Christianity, a pretty solid belief that with the the great and last sacrifice of Christ, that there would never again be any animal sacrifices. That That's fairly universally believed. Now, look, I know that's not a huge point of doctrine. You're probably not hearing it in your local Methodist church this weekend. Like, hey, just so you know, no more sacrifices. I mean, it's, it's not going to come up. But theologically, that, that's a belief, that there would never be animal sacrifice again. Well, Joseph is going to teach something different. In 1840, it's October 5th of 1840, there's a document that is labeled by the Joseph Smith Papers called Instruction on the Priesthood. And he's making a commentary of this. It will be necessary here to make a few observations on the doctrine set forth in the above quotation. Now, he's he's, uh, just quoted from Levi and Malachi, right? Because, you know, what does Malachi say, right, Uh, about this, this great and last sacrifice? It will be necessary here to make a few observations on the doctrine set forth in the above quotation, as it was is generally supposed that sacrifice was entirely done away when the great sacrifice was offered up, and there will be uh, no ne- necessity for the ordinance of sacrifice in the future. But those who assert this are not acquainted with the duties, privileges, and authority of the priesthood, or with the prophets. The offering of sacrifice has ever been connected and forms a part of the duties of the priesthood. It began with the priesthood and it will continue until after the coming of Christ from generation to generation. Now, this is is, is Joseph teaching a doctrine that is not going to be well known. I, and I'm guessing that many people listening are not going to be, what do you mean, right? Well, first of all, I mean, many Christians assign animal sacrifice to the law of Moses, right? What, what, it's, it's part of the law of Moses that you do this. But of course, um, Abraham is sacrificing long before there's a law of Moses, right? So sacrifice actually exists before the law of Moses. And I think it's part of what Joseph is trying to say. Um, he, Is going to go on and talk about Elijah and and his power. Um, But he's going to say, These sacrifices, as well as every ordinance belonging to the priesthood, will, when the temple of the Lord shall be built and the sons of Levi be purified, be fully restored and attended to. All their powers, ramifications, and blessings— this ever that ever was did and will exist when the powers of the Melchizedek priesthood are sufficiently manifest now he's going to explain this now it this doesn't mean that he's saying that they're going to now we're going to build a temple and all of it's going to be animal sacrifice but there's going to at least be symbolically at least one sacrifice when all of this this happens and Joseph explains why else how can the restitution of all things spoken of by the holy prophets be brought to pass? It is not to be understood that the law of Moses will be established again with all its rites and variety and ceremonies. This has never been spoken of by the prophets. But those things which existed prior to Moses' day, such as sacrifice, will be continued. It may be asked by some what necessity for a sacrifice, since the great sacrifice was offered. In answer to which, if repentance, baptism, and faith existed prior to the days of Christ, what necessity for them, necessity to them since that time? So here Joseph's responding by saying, well, if you're claiming that there was repentance, faith, and baptism prior to Jesus, then why would we need them now if if, if we didn't have them then? And of course, Joseph's making the point that he believes that part of what's happening is a restoration of all things, and that apparently it's not going to be, you know, how much of a drink offering needs to be done, and, and it's not going to be the law of Moses, but that apparently when that temple is rebuilt, that there will be at least a sacrifice as a means of being the restitution of all things. Um, this is so. This teaching of Joseph here is also considered controversial. So another thing, I I, I don't know what was specifically said, Elder, um, in that. But I would guess that there's, there's certainly people that attack that. I know that certainly, like Lighthouse Ministries attacks Joseph Smith along those lines, that, um, of course, there isn't going to be another sacrifice. Jesus was the last sacrifice. There wouldn't be one. And, of course, they would say, well, that's Scripture, right? The great and last sacrifice. And yet, Scripture also says that there's going to be a restitution of all things. So, you know, like all, you know, Scriptures, that you can battle them out one way or the other depending upon your, your point of view. In any case, most sources that relate to this claim that Joseph Smith is part of some kind of occult, or then trying to make it, um, you know, make it equivalent to devil worship, right? Um, it, it, they are late reminiscent accounts, and they are not ones that are coming from Joseph. Now, look, people believed a lot of weird things back then like culturally believe them i mean it was a pretty common thing for people to believe that you could with two saplings in your hand uh, two two rods in your hand find water or other things hidden under the ground there are people today who still believe that that ditch witching or or scrying with rods is a way to find water or oil under the ground so it's important that we we recognize that it's entirely possible that people really believe that we know that people believe that there was buried treasure all over the place. We can read it all over in their newspapers. People claim over and over and over again that they know where Captain Kidd's treasure is buried, you know, probably not buried in Pennsylvania where Captain Kidd never was, but that, but people will claim those things. So it's hard to sort all of the things out. Did Joseph Smith have cultural beliefs that we would consider crazy and weird? Yes. Um, does he or anyone else ever even begin to attempt to claim it's some kind of satanic worship? Even the people in these horrible accounts, right, even the people who hate him in these accounts, none of them are claiming that those sacrifices were to worship the devil. In fact, one of them is claiming it's to appease God. One of them is saying to, you know, to frighten off the evil spirit or keep the evil spirit at bay. You know, one is 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 trying to 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 make God happy, but none of them are claiming that it's some kind of devil worship. that it's a great example of how you have a bad source and then you have someone definitively interpreting as though that bad source were a fact. Um, even in so far as one of these sources, you know, attacking the fact that Joseph Smith's son died, um but saying that it was a daughter that he had. well, we have lots of sources that say it was a son, right? I mean, so they're, they're getting basic facts wrong. They are alleging them many years after the fact, and they are claiming conversations for which we have no way of proving that they happen. We certainly don't have Joseph ever saying those things or Joseph Smith, Sr., or Lucy MacSmith. Smith. By all accounts, they appear to be a very God fearing people not trying to worship the devil. Um, but in fact, we even have one account. We have a bad account. Again, it's not a good account. Many years later, from a Methodist uh, who claims that Joseph Smith was attending the Sunday school of the local Methodist church down there in Harmony, and that his name's on one of the Sunday school rolls. He claims that... You know, because people knew that what kind of a business he was in and that he was a necromancer and a, and a wizard and things like that, that they eventually had his name removed from the role. But even that you find to be this very contradictory argument, right? Joseph's so pious that he's going to church, but he's also worshiping the devil. Right? There, there's all kinds of things that are thrown up there to see what will stick. The reality is, people after the fact make all kinds of claims in order to negate the truth claims of Joseph Smith. It's very difficult as a historian to piece out what truths there are in there, especially when the sources are biased and late and contradictory and filled with demonstrably false statements. Well, I know he's wrong about this because I can check on this. So am I just going to assume he's right about everything else that I can't check on? You can see the problem, right? Once someone is demonstrated to believe something totally false but represented as a fact, well then, how do I know that the other things that I can't check that they represent as a fact, how do I know that those are true? Someone could say, well, the fact that there's multiple people who say that that whole sheep slash dog incident happened, that proves that it happened. No, it it proves that someone is circulating a story that it happened, and people just keep recirculating the story over and over and over again, just like the Solomon Spaulding Manuscript, where people claim for decades and decades and decades that the Book of Mormon is just copied from the Solomon Spaulding Manuscript, and they do it uncritically. They do it at the highest levels of American government and American religion, and They clearly do it falsely. So thank you for your question, Elder. Uh, Keep up the good work there. Um, And we hope that everyone listening got at least something out of this. And at the very least, they got the fact to to no longer trust Richard's fraudulent, fraudulent picks in any sporting event going forward. I think that's – is that the main point? That's the main point. Join us next week for Cricket Picks. Wow, we we're gonna do we're gonna hit that and also Australian rules football.
0: Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. dot com. Until next time.